The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. All right, so we're here to do a covenantal overview of the book of Genesis. There's probably only one place that I will have you read scripture with me from, and you can turn there now. We, we won't start reading yet, but I would have you keep a finger or a marker in chapter 15. So Genesis chapter 15, if you'll turn there, we will eventually get there. Y'all have heard me talk a lot about the covenant structure. Anybody remember what point one is? Point one of the biblical covenant is transcendence. Do you remember how transcendence is supposed to be shown? How do we know that God is transcendent? Well, because the Bible routinely shows him being the creator, the redeemer, and the revealer of, of truth. Nobody else can create, nobody else can redeem, nobody else can reveal what is true. How is transcendence shown in the book of Genesis? Well, it really begins right at the very first, right? Genesis 1.1, y'all can quote that by heart in the beginning. But Genesis chapter 1 takes the existence of God for granted and doesn't, doesn't go to any lengths to try to prove it. And that's part of what we're talking about here. We're talking about the presuppositions in Scripture. And the presupposition that we have here is that there is a God who created all things and is transcendent over all his creation. And he has revealed himself through his word. Genesis chapter 1 goes through all of that and shows the whole creation going on. Doesn't bother to explain how God made things or why he did the things the way he did them. But there's Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning arguments or in the beginning evidence, but in the beginning God. And so we see very clearly in Genesis chapter 1, but also again in chapter 2, that the transcendent God is the God over all creation. There are other places where God's transcendence is shown. Frankly, throughout the book of Genesis, we're going to find God revealing himself to a host of characters. Right? He shows up to Noah and tells him to start constructing the ark. Shows up to other prophets like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then to Joseph. So God, throughout the book of Genesis, is revealing himself. He's showing up personally and revealing himself to human beings. And so he is the redeemer. Eventually he will also in the book of Genesis show himself to be the uh, redeemer, not just revealer, but redeemer. He's going to come and rescue those who are in sin. And the first place we see that it's right off the bat in Genesis chapter three, after Adam and Eve have sinned, at the end of cursing the devil and the woman and the man, at the end of announcing the curses on their sin, uh, well, it's actually when he's talking to the woman, God promises redemption, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. 
And so we put enmity or warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that continues. So we said we're, we're doing a flyover of the book of Genesis, but we're not necessarily looking at every mountain or every valley or where the river runs, but there is a road, there's a highway that begins at the book of Genesis real early, chapter 1, 2, 3, and that road continues like a highway to the rest of the Bible, and it continues on, and so it's important there. So God shows himself in Genesis to be the sovereign, as we've been talking about in Sunday school, to be the one who's in charge of all things, including the salvation of sinners. In Genesis chapter 20, we won't turn there right now, one particular instance is important where we have our characters, uh, I believe it's Abraham. Abraham is, yeah, it's Abraham. He's, he's fled because of a famine, and the, he's told Sarah again, please say that you're my sister so that he won't be killed. And the king there finds out in a dream. God had to come to the king and tell him, you're a dead man because you've, you've tried to marry this woman and she's already married. And the king pleads in that place, but you know, I, I didn't know, and this was all in the, in the integrity of my heart that I did these things. I didn't know I was doing wrong by bringing her in. And it's amazing what God says in that place. He says, yes, I know this is what you did, and I restrained you. I kept you from sinning against me in this way. And so what is that? It means God is in charge even of human decisions, that doesn't mean that your decisions aren't real. It just means that God is ultimately in charge of how those turn out. And you don't decide anything that's outside God's plan. You understand that. We've been talking about that in Sunday school. So that's the first portion of the covenant, that God is the creator. He is the revealer of truth. We see that right away. And he's very quickly shown as being the redeemer. We're going to see that a little bit more, but I want to Move on to the second point of the covenant. The second point of the biblical covenant is, uh, has to do with representation, or the word that we might like better is it has to do with mediation. Who's the mediator? We've got God, the transcendent one now, who represents God. And we find that right away. Genesis chapter 1, God creates man in his image, male and female, he made them in his image and made them rulers over all things that he had made. He gave them dominion over all the rest of his creation. So there's a very real sense in which mankind in general is a covenant mediator. We are over the whole rest of the creation. This is reiterated then after the flood. Genesis chapter 9, God comes to Noah, institutes the death penalty for murder, and the reason there is, that man was created in the image of God. And in that place, he also then places all the animals under God or under man in a way that they hadn't quite been before that time. Now they're going to be afraid of man and stuff like that. And man gets to eat them and, and all that. So uh, the death penalty for murder confirms the fact that mankind in general is the representative of God on the earth. We don't generally do a great job of that representation, but that's why we need Jesus. Genesis also shows the patriarchs as covenant mediators. 
It's not long before we wind up meeting a man named Abram, who becomes Abraham. And Abraham then becomes the mediator of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. He becomes the representative. It's not just a covenant that God makes with Abraham, but he says things like, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so that's God's blessing coming through Abraham to the rest of the world. So Abraham becomes a covenant mediator. His son Isaac becomes a covenant mediator in the same way. Jacob in the same way. And eventually Joshua or Joseph comes along and also becomes the mediator of God's blessings to the whole nation of Israel. And so that's an important point there that Abraham, uh, we see it even played out in a very literal way when the Lord and two of his angels are on the way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and they stop at Abraham's house for lunch. And as Abraham is sending them away, he very literally becomes a mediator for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's, he's pleading with God to show mercy and to not destroy and, and all of that. So that becomes a very literal sense in which Abraham is a covenant mediator. But if you look at what the New Testament has to say about Abraham, frankly, aside from Jesus, there may be more mentions of Abraham in the New Testament than any other character in the scripture, including like Peter and Paul. Uh, count up all the books that mention Abraham. He's then more than you think. And there's a lot to be said about him. And in Galatians, when it talks about Abraham, it says that this concept that all the nations would be blessed in him and that that God was giving him a land that this was actually this was actually talking about everything and not just the narrow strip of land in what we call Palestine now but the whole world the gospel that went to Abraham told him all the world will be blessed in you and the repeat the repeated phrase then that God would make Abraham's offspring or his seed more numerous than the stars, more numerous than the sand that is by the seashore. So I'm getting to this fun point. That means that the Sunday school song that says, Father Abraham has many sons, many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. There's, there's Bible in that. That's not just a goofy Sunday school. It is a goofy Sunday school song, but it's not just that. There's a real truth there. When we say we are the descendants of Father Abraham, that means that by faith, you and I are those sands by the seashore and those stars in the sky, more than can be counted. And not father like priest or anything like that. And, and we're not talking about Father Abraham as setting aside Jesus in any way. We're just recognizing that God really did mediate his covenant grace to the whole world through what he had said to Abraham. So that's interesting. And, and that all begins in the book of Genesis and really colors everything that follows from that point forward. Any thoughts on this before we move on to the next section? Hopefully you find that interesting. Now, the most important mediator, of course, is Jesus, who is not named specifically in the book of Genesis. But like I said, he certainly shows up in Genesis 3.16 where the gospel is first given that one would come and crush the head of the serpent. And we know that was Jesus. But also there are pictures in, in Genesis that are inescapably, I think, pointing to the coming of Christ. 
when Abraham was set, told to go and sacrifice Isaac? Right? Remember Isaac's asking about it? We've got the wood, we've got the knife, but we don't have the lamb. And Abraham's answer, remember, was just relax everything. No, his answer was the Lord will provide a lamb. And when Isaac was saved from being slaughtered on that altar, what was the, what was the answer? There was a ram that was caught in the thorns and the ram took his place. So this concept of a substitutionary sacrifice begins early. It's right in Genesis. In fact, it's earlier than that. It goes all the way to back what we were talking about in Genesis after Adam and Eve sinned. What was the first death that happened in the whole world? It was a substitutionary death. An innocent animal was put to death so that sinful humans could be clothed. All right? So all of that is pointing forward to Jesus, the ultimate covenant mediator. The third section of the biblical covenant is ethics, where we talk about what are the rules. If we're going to be involved in this organization and this uh, enterprise, what does that mean? What does it look like? What do I have to do? And although the book of Genesis is called, it is properly considered part of the law, the first five books, the Torah, uh, there aren't really general commands given in the book of Genesis. But we would be wrong in saying that before Moses came and brought the law, that there was no law. That would be very wrong. In fact, in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 5, God explains his grace toward Abraham and says, Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Well, all that means is that Abraham obeyed commandments that weren't written down and weren't preserved for us. But this idea that it was some kind of free-for-all or something and Moses came in and spoiled the party by bringing laws, that's not right. God is eternal and God's definitions of sin are eternal. They, they do not change. And if this was true before the law came, guess what? It's also true after the law came. And after the law, the, the law as a covenant has been put out of gear by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's still true that God's definitions of sin have not changed. Which is why we can go back and look at what was written to Moses and say, we are not under law, we are under grace, but... Precisely because I'm under grace, I want to do what God wants me to do. And in this law is where I find that out. We don't run into that very much today, a lot of that. But we do kind of find in the culture people saying things like, well, right and wrong are just kind of innate and we know and we have a conscience. And there are even those who say by studying nature, we can figure out natural law and stuff like that. Have you heard those sorts of things? What's the answer? For me, the answer is, which is easier? To argue about this natural law or to go to the place where it's written down? And coincidentally, surprise, surprise, everybody that doesn't believe in the written law but does believe in this kind of amorphous, jellified sort of uh, natural law, guess what? They don't agree with each other about what that natural law requires. So what, what's God do? He puts it in writing for our sake and for our instruction that we might be edified. So when the preacher stands up here and tells you, you still have to obey God's commandments, 
I'm not talking about work salvation. I'm not talking about adding anything to the sacrifice of Christ. I'm saying that the reason God saved you is so that you could start acting like one of his people. And the law defines what that looks like. We've got that right. There are no issues with that. Anybody want to fight? (laughs) The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. Okay, so Abraham was a commandment keeper. Nice. That's not why God saved him, though. In chapter 15, we're going to go there. Let's go ahead and go now. Chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then look at verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. We'll stop there right now. But uh, we're talking about ethics. How do you do what God wants you to do? How do you please the Lord? How is a sinner to be made right with God? Not by commandment keeping. You've already blown that. You've You've already broken the law. Nine ways to Sunday, right? But how are we made right? The same way Abraham was made right. He believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Reckoned is an accounting term and it has to do with just how much is written onto your account. Like if, you're, if you deposit money in a bank, the bank's job is to record that amount and record it faithfully. But let's say this, the bank is a human institution. Let's say you deposit $1,000 and the bank writes down $5,000. Now, how much money is in your account? Doesn't matter what you put in there. It matters what the bank says is in there. If they make a mistake like that, they'll get it changed right away. But until they change it, you've got $5,000 because that's what they say you have. On the other hand, if you deposit a thousand and they only write down a hundred, how much do you have? You have a hundred. And I'm sorry, they're not going to change that back. So 
you have a hundred dollars. You thought you had a thousand, but it was written down to you as a hundred and that's what you have. Well, it's kind of the same way. When we talk about God reckoning righteousness to us, that means that instead of writing on our account, our own works and our own failures, that God reckons instead the complete righteousness of Jesus Christ. We were talking before in Sunday school. That means everything Jesus did and everything that he didn't do that amounted to obedience to God. When he refused to sin, when he passively accepted the will of God in his life, and when he actively, purposely obeyed every jot and tittle of what God had commanded. All of that is reckoned to you. When God said he reckoned righteousness to Abraham, he didn't just write down righteousness. It meant specifically the righteousness of the Redeemer who was to come. So Abraham was not saved by his covenant keeping. He was not saved by obeying the law. He was saved by Jesus Christ. He just didn't know his name yet. How were the Old Testament saints saved? The same way you and I are saved. Justified by faith as a gift. Amen, pastor. That's good stuff. Let's keep reading then in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. There's another ethics thing right there. You know, uh, Abram may not have delivered general commandments to us, but Scripture says that when he was called, he went. He obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed the call. Y'all want to do what God's called you to do? <laughs> Y'all want to be right with God? You need to go where he calls you to go. Do what he calls you to do. Verse 8, and he said, O Lord, how may I know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and after, afterward they will come out with many possessions." And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Let's stop right there. So we will talk just a little bit more about the ceremony that just happened where the burning fire goes between the pieces of the animals. But what I want to focus on right now is verse 16. It says in the fourth generation, your people will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. He's saying to Abraham, you will inherit this land. It just won't be now. And what's the reason? Because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. Which meant that there was a filling place that God was keeping track of. He was keeping track of the sins of the Amorites that were living then in the promised land. And he knew there was going to come a time when he said, this is enough. You're done right now, and I'm kicking you all out and bringing my people in. And that time had not come yet. But the implication then is that it wasn't just Abram who was supposed to know how to obey God, 
But God expected the pagans to know it too. He had revealed himself enough through the creation, like Romans chapter 1 says, God had revealed himself enough to leave everyone without excuse. And so God was keeping track of sin, even though there was no written law at the time. All right? Does that make sense? And the Amorites were expected to keep his commandments. They didn't do it, and now they're under judgment. Questions or comments about this ethics section here? Let's move on to sanctions. The fourth section of the biblical covenant is sanctions or oaths. Now, when you're involving yourself in a biblical covenant, there comes a time, just like when we get into a contract, what do you do at the very end to ratify it? You sign the dotted line in front of witnesses. Well, in the biblical covenant, they also had to sign the dotted line and they did it by means of an oath, saying things like, may the Lord do so to me and more also if I do not keep this word. Right, And so they would raise their hand to heaven and swear by the God who was witnessing. And that's how they would sign and seal the oath. They would then often have a meal that they would eat together. And that was a way of sealing the covenant. And they would do what God did here with Abram, where they would take these animals and cut them in half and create kind of a path between their carcasses. And then the two parties of the covenant would walk that path together. And it was a visual representation of calling down this curse upon myself. It was a way of saying, as I'm walking between these slain carcasses, it's a way of saying, may God do this to me. And more also, if I break the word that I'm giving here today. So it's a way of calling down curses on your head, just like when you were kids and you used to pinky swear and say, uh, Say, what's the word? I uh, Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. What are you doing? You're calling down curses. It's crossing your heart with a blade is what that's talking about. And uh, man, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. That's a childhood holdover from the way people used to make these oaths. And so as they walk between the carcasses, they're kind of saying, cross my heart, hope, and hope to die. May I be split in half just like these guys. That was almost a rhyme. <laughs> right? So then what is significant here about the fact that when it came time to walk between the pieces, God put Abraham to sleep. When it... Get this. This is such a picture of the gospel. Get this, please. When it came time to to speak that oath and to call down curses for disobedience to the covenant. When it came time to say, yes, if I don't keep this covenant, may all these things happen to me. God put Abram to sleep and he walked that path by himself. The curse that you and I have earned and deserved. God called that on himself way back in Genesis chapter 15. And the time came when it was time to bring this to bring this about. And what happened? Jesus Christ, the righteous one, put to death in your place for your crimes. What God had done, what you deserved for what you had done. God took that on himself, just like he promised way back here. And 
Does that get you excited? To me, that's an amazing picture of Christ. And I'm the only one that talks about it. No. (laughs) But you don't hear that preached very much. So God is the one who cut the covenant and he took the he took the oath and the sanctions for disobedience upon himself. Elsewhere, we see in the book of Genesis that God uh, consistently rewards his own people. Abram, by the time Abraham was done, he was not a poor man. He was, he was rich. He was wealthy. He was so wealthy that surrounding nations used to ask him to leave because he was growing too powerful. They became afraid of him. Same with Isaac and Jacob. The same sorts of things happen. Remember when Joseph was sold into captivity in Egypt, he went into Potiphar's house, and what happened? God blessed the whole house of Potiphar because of Joseph being there. So Potiphar didn't even care what was going on. He just left it to Joseph. What is this? It's the blessing of God being poured out on those who are covenantally faithful. Listen, the word of faith movement is not wrong for saying that God pours out blessings on covenantally faithful people in time and history. They're just wrong for demanding their particular blessing at this time and stuff like that. But, but that concept is not wrong. And we lose a great deal. We give up dominion over the world when we give up this idea that God both punishes wickedness and rewards righteousness in time and history. So how's that going to work? If you have a nation that has departed from God and they do not care any longer about his rules or his laws, what's going to happen? That nation's going to kind of hit the bottom. It's going to go down and down. On the other hand, say you have a nation that is small and weak, but they have covenanted together that they will keep the commandments of God. What's God going to do for them? Boom, 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 boom. And the arrow is going to point up. Now, if this continues over time in history, what's going to happen? All the nations that are obeying God are going to be up here, and all the nations that are disobeying God are going to be down here. That's even before you get to all the promises to saying that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's before you get to promises like God will make a footstool out of all the enemies of Jesus in time and history. That's before you get there. You can just see from the trajectory of the curses and the blessings. Bad guys are going to be put down. Righteous people are going to be lifted up. That's what God does. That doesn't mean you get a new Cadillac or you necessarily, you know, But it does mean that overall, the faithful people of God are going to be exalted. And those who deny him and rebel against him are going to be put down. Maybe we see it in our lifetime. Generally, this happens over generations. But I believe we see it in our lifetime. The last thing then, uh, let's continue reading where we left off in verse 17. said, and it came about. When the sun had set, that it was very dark. And oh, we already read that, sorry. I meant verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your seed I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Perfect pronunciation of all those terms. (laughs) What is this? 
combine this with the promise that the descendants of the faithful would be more than the stars in the sky and more than the sand of the sea. The New Testament, like I said, comes back and sees this and says, this is about the whole world. That's amazing. The fifth part of the covenant is succession, where the question is answered, does this outfit have a future? Do we, can, if we become part of this, what's the end of this going to be? How's this going to continue in the future? And the answer here in the book of Genesis is, God has made promises that will be fulfilled. And as we become the sons and daughters of Abraham, guess what? We enter into his inheritance through Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing. Can you believe that the promises of God have been given to you in this way? Now, what does that, what does that mean to us? What do we do with this? It has to mean that when we're watching Fox News or we're watching CNN and things look bad and things look terrible and we're just, we, the news piles on and makes it seem like everything's going down the drain, we have to be the ones that stand up and say, you know what, that's not what my God has said about me. He has called me an inheritor. He has called me a son or a daughter of Abraham. He has seated me with Jesus Christ in heavenly places. And so I'm not saying I personally am going to be exalted in spite of what I hear. I'm saying that the Lord's church will not be defeated in spite of all these things, all the threatenings and all the darkness and the smoke and the gunfire. None of that is going to derail God's promises toward his covenant people. We can trust that we win and why? Because at the very beginning, you don't have to read the Revelation to see we win. It's, it's that highway that goes through the whole scripture says we win. Not just after all the bad guys are gone, so we don't have anybody to fight against anymore. It's, it's while they're at their doing their worst, while they're at their height of their powers, that's when the Lord brings them down. And we see that time and again throughout the whole scripture. Oh, I want you to be encouraged by this. The book of Genesis is where it's all founded, where it all begins, and where that covenant highway starts driving down the road. And as long as we're on that highway, we have, it's not just that we have an optimism. It's unfaithful for us to be less than bright and happy as we look forward to what, what the future may hold because we have the promises of God. Not just what it says in Genesis, but throughout. And Jesus finally putting a cap on all of it and saying, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why do we suffer so? Why are we so unwilling to enter into battle with the enemy? Uh, we're just kind of scaredy cats. We're just kind of unfaithful in that. Why are we so scared to tell people on the streets about Jesus and what's going on? Man, we can't let the enemy just cower us like that when we have the covenant of God. Amen? Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.